Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Beginning in March and increasing in intensity this month, vast parts of Canada have been scorched by a record-setting series of wildfires. Some 450 separate fires, with more than half of them burning out of control as of earlier this week, incinerated over 11 million acres and sent poisonous smoke clouds southward to engulf large parts of the U.S. With the worst fire season in Canadian history still raging, how do we begin to understand what's occurring? How do we get simplistic get beyond simplistic mainstream narratives that some generalized humanity against nature, which in turn disappeared the links between such catastrophic conflagrations and the dominant social order. Joining us today from Wales, <clears throat> excuse me, to share his perspectives on wild, wildfires and their social context. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry about that, folks. The root causes of what increasingly is becoming a world on fire is Ian Rappel, an eco-socialist activist, critical geographer, and conservation ecologist. Rappel has been working and campaigning for three decades on a diverse range of interconnected environmental concerns. He currently works for the UK's Real Farming Trust, an organization promoting agroecology and food sovereignty. His writings regularly explore ecological crises and their relation to the dominant social order. Today, we'll be drawing from his article, Feeling the Heat, Wildfires and Capitalism, that appeared in the October 2022 UK Quarterly International Socialism. Ian Rappel, welcome to WORT. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You know, I'd like to start at a rather basic level with some basic definitions, if you will. You self-describe as an eco-socialist. For those who might not be familiar with the term, explain what you mean. Okay, well, uh, (laughs) that's a good start. I think uh, if we think about what socialism has always been as a tradition, it's been a quest for, if you like, a, a viable society, one that's fair just and for a lot of its time and, and the last sort of 400 years and certainly since the rise of capitalism it's been an alternative position a different set of values to just the cash nexus but it has also paid close attention to the notion of class that there are people who benefit from capitalism and then they ex- in turn exploit others to do that I suppose the addition of the prefix eco uh, is a result of the fact that for much of its history, socialism was mainly concerned with with a viable society at the social economic level. It's not true that they weren't thinking about ecology, but the crises of ecology hadn't hit the the, the sort of size and scale uh, that we have seen since the end of the Second World War, and most especially since the 1970s and neoliberalism. The collapse of the Soviet Union and, and the end of a, a kind of version of socialism that was associated with productivism and trying to keep up with the West in terms of industrialization means that there was some space available for socialists to look at ecology uh, and, and to try and understand how the system uh, it, interacts with the living planet and and is so dysfunctional so an eco-socialist i guess adds an element to the the quest for a historically viable society by saying that that's not just a social phenomena economic phenomena a political phenomena but also an ecological one as well and that unless we get all of those things right um, 
um, we are heading into a direction that will probably end in our own extinction. So it's it's an addition to the socialist tradition, and, and it enriches it. So, Ian Rappel, as an eco-socialist, what do you mean when you use the term capitalism? It's so immensely mystified when used at all, especially here in the U.S. Yeah, it's. I think it's probably deliberately mystified um, because it's promoted by those especially who benefit from it uh, as the, the natural state. Um, you know, it's it's the highest level of human civilization and so on. But at one level, it's a very simple uh, thing to understand. Uh, if we if we think about inequality, for instance, so if we undertook a small exercise, like um, if if you asked everybody in the world to walk past you, and their height uh, was dependent on their uh, level of wealth, um, you would ask them to walk past every minute or so. This is a hypothetical, but it helps to illustrate, I suppose. For the vast majority of the day, you would get, um, you know, people who are tiny, uh, barely perceptible. And then right at the end of the day, for the last few seconds of that day, you would start seeing very tall people. And then suddenly, right at the very, very end, you see a, a, a tiny number of extremely large people whose, whose head might actually be scraping the moon. So it's just, you know, it's it's a system of, of organized inequality in terms of power and in terms of wealth. And it's also a system of organized exploitation that ex exploits workers, knocks out opposing classes like the peasantry or indigenous people, uh, and does so in the service of accumulation of, of profit for that opulent minority. So that's it uh, as a system. And we know we're living in that. You can feel it, as I'm sure, as, as we're saying it. You know, <laughs> it just makes intuitive sense. So, uh, so but from, it's hidden from us. So. so from your vantage point as an eco-socialist, give us your, your sense of what you mean when you talk about wildfire. Well, I think this uh, it's a really good example of what happens when we, if you like, shine a socialist light or eco-socialist light on, on a particular problem. If we look at the fires in Canada, and they're very traumatic and, I mean, unbelievably awful to be living through, I'm sure. Uh, they're very similar to what we saw in Europe in July of last year, uh, right the way across the continent here, uh, with very similar patterns, you know, huge areas being burnt up very quickly, um, unprecedented levels of fires. And they look like nature's untrammeled forces. You know, it's it starts somewhere. It's the if we like, we could say that it's accelerated by climate change. But they look as though they're out of control. They look as though we, you know, we they're beyond our almost comprehension in terms of their severity. And all we can do is try and fight them. Um, but actually, if we if we sort of go back one step and we think, well, what? What, what does a fire need? A fire needs fuel, a fire needs ignition, and a fire needs uh, an airflow or an accelerant. Well, if we analyze the society as, as we have it, um, industrial neoliberal capitalism, where's the fuel coming from? Who's igniting these? And, and what what is the accelerant? So we can kind of apply a very simple understanding of the mechanisms of fire and apply it uh, through its social lens. And what we find is that in terms of fuel, uh, one of the characteristics of, of capitalism as it's played out across landscapes uh, is that it's simplified a lot of ecology. So it, it depends on monoculture, it smashes diversity uh, because it usually gets in the way of profitability. And it creates the conditions that are sort of perfect for fires in a way because fires probably don't like uh, diversity of habitats and so on. They'd much prefer to rage through a monocultural forest or a, a plantation. Um, so there's there's that element. And then there's also the fact that a lot of these wildfires, like the ones we saw in the Pantanal region in Brazil uh, during the height of COVID, uh, were set to destroy natural habitat or to destroy diverse habitat and open them up to uh, intensive farming and so on. So so capitalism and uh, 
the, the people who benefit from it at, the, at that level are, are using fire to either manipulate the landscape or, or setting up a landscape around us that is very simplified and very favorable to to fire and it also includes uh, the movement of other of species around the world i mean the late great mike davis pointed out that a lot of california's fires um were down to invasive brown grasses that were coming in and out competing the other species and then in the mediterranean a lot of the fires are a result of eucalyptus plantations there and likewise actually in california there's a lot of eucalyptus so we're we're messing around. The system is messing ecology around to the degree that it that it provides all these additional fuels. Um, I mean, there's always a natural background of wildfires, but I think the fuel loading of, of the capitalist ecology that simplifies ecosystems for commodity purposes usually, or translocates species across the world for the same reason, means that it, it's it, the fuel load is 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 very uh, flammable. Uh, so that's, that's the, just just looking at you know the fuel for those fires. You know, following on the heels of what was up until then really a record-breaking long hot summer of massive conflagrations across the northern hemisphere, and earlier mega fires that in 2022 in the global south. Your article, <clears throat> your analysis pointed to the centrality of capitalism's engine of accumulation. That is, you you mentioned that before. But I want to go a little bit deep, take that a little bit deeper. Uh, talk about uh, that accumulation process in regard to uh, what it does, ecologically speaking. You've, you've touched on it, of course, uh, but th- that engine that drives the system. Yeah, so I, um, capitalism carries its own ecological expression. Um, it it, I mean, it's some people argue, I suppose, that capitalism is anti-ecological, uh, but I'm not. I'm not sure that's the case. Um, it's it's probably more productive to say that it's ecologically dysfunctional because what it prefers in terms of the production of profits and the accumulation of profits is it prefers simplified ecosystems. So it will, you know, for example, the the rainforest is is targeted for burning. Uh, as, uh, along with all of the other peoples associated with it, indigenous populations, peasant farmers, and so on, targeted uh, for burning so that the, the complexity of the rainforest, which is very, very rich in diversity, can be replaced with monocultural plantations. Uh, in Asia, things like palm oil. Uh, in Latin America, things like soy or, or intensive beef ranching. Uh, so the, the just the normal process of accumulation, profit, and the way that those things play out on international markets, and they're encouraged by large organisations like the World Bank and the IMF and so on, and all the Western corporations involved, means that, that capitalism's ecological preference is for simplicity, uh, and, and the consequence of that is is not just you know that it, that it's a much more flammable load uh, but also that it destroys biodiversity uh, and and is causing a mass extinction event in front of our very eyes so that's its sort of ecological uh output if you like and, and uh, it i mean it carries the same consequences socially of course you know the number of languages being lost um what's happening to the global peasantry uh you know, the, the the huge urban slums that are rising everywhere, those sorts of things. It 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 likes us, it likes us and nature to be as simple as possible from the from the perspective of profit generation. Um, like droughts and, and floods, severe weather events and melting ice, the global rise of megafires is regularly attributed primarily to climate change. You argue that something additional and as important is going on, that wildfires may appear to be natural consequences of climate change, but they're not. Talk about that. That is, the the dominant trope, of course, is everything boils down to climate change, but what's pushing the climate change? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, I suppose we could say that, like uh, um, Andres Malm and others, that, that capitalism is a uh, system based on 
fossil fuel extraction and use. So, so um, there's no doubt we would have affected the atmosphere before the rise of capitalism, but, but certainly since the war, uh, when we everything became dominated by, uh, especially U.S. Uh, petro and oil industries and so on, it, it, we've shifted across pretty much to everything across the fossil fuels, uh, and that's that's the engine in many ways of of the capitalist production. Which is part of the reason there's so much resistance against uh, pulling out of oil and coal and gas and looking for alternative means, because there's a lot of people, uh, you know, who are benefiting from from the current system, and they have done for quite a long time. Um, so it's uh, the impact that it has is is to is the we might have a wildfire we might even have a natural wildfire but but the ones that we're thinking about here are ones that are you know deliberately set by somebody or, uh, or you know for whatever ends but but climate change then acts as a sort of accelerant you know like if you have a if you set a a, a fire and you want it to burn a bit faster you either blow more air on it add more fuel or you add something extra like uh you know a flammable liquid oil paraffin that kind of thing well, cap, um, climate change is doing sort of all, all three of those things. Uh, it, it's it's adding to the propensity of fires to uh, be more frequent, larger, and more sort of out of control. But they, we can't disconnect that response from the sort of societal root of those wildfires in the first place. That, that capitalism is messing around with the ecology. It's it it deliberately. Uh, under invests in the, what we need in order to fight those fires and it's also quite often I would say it, it's responsible for the alienation that people have that make them go out and set these things in the first place either in order to enhance uh, you know their own uh, position or as a kind of mark of you know individualist despair you know an, an arsonist might go out and Set fire to the landscape around them to get a, a bit of a kick, but that in that position in itself is a product of alienation um, because they're not thinking about the ecological impact or the social impact, the health impact of that sort of thing. So it, it, we can't really understand the system, or we can't understand wildfires and how they're created and how they're worsened by climate change unless we we look at the bigger picture and we think of it in the context of of the dominant social form, which is neoliberal capitalism pretty much everywhere now. You're listening to Ian Rappel speaking to us from Wales, uh, eco-socialist, eco-socialist activist and, and author. We'll be opening up the phone lines at half past the hour at 608-256-2001 if you care to join us in this conversation with a question, a comment, an observation. Again, 608-256-2001 at half past the hour. You know, Ian, some, some, especially the climate change deniers, might argue that wildfires have always been around, that they, need, that they indeed certainly predate capitalism, as you mentioned. Talk about the distinctions between that longer arc of pre-capitalist, pre-industrial use of fire and that taken up under the regime of capital. Well, probably the most important distinction is that a pre-industrial use of fire was pretty universally um, understood and known by everybody. Um, fire would have played a central role uh, in the household, um, whether it was the hearth, uh, whether it was uh, early artisanal industries. Um, so there was a familiarity with fire uh, before the rise of industrial capitalism. And what what it's done, if you like, is, is it's 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 shifted fire in terms of its role in our social metabolism away from us. It's alienated us. Um, so now a fire looks, you know, we, we we see a wildfire and it looks like nature's untrammeled response, you know, to climate change, if you like. But there's also a, a you know a, a lazy barbecue chef or an arsonist and that sort of thing. It looks out of control and, and you know, it, it essentially is in a physical sense. But part of the reason why we look at it like that is that we ourselves have become alienated from the flame. And at one 
for most human history, fire would have been utilized uh, by everybody and would have been understood and, and controlled. And there would have been a lot more confidence around, around fires. Industrial uh, capitalism has put the fire either very far away from us, because if you think about homes and the energy that we're using, you know, speaking to each other, electricity and so on, that's still largely a product of fire. There's just those fires are a long way away in a large box uh, called a power station, but they're burning coal and, and it's all hidden behind a, a you know a machine and, and those sorts of things. So it's it's not as if fire is now outside of our life and and we only see it on these you know terrible occasions. It's actually still fundamental to our social metabolism because capitalism is a fossil fuel system. Uh, it's the burning of fossil fuels that is is creating the energy that we are using by and large. Um, <laughs> But that means we don't see the fire. So we, we, you know, if there is a difference, and what we perhaps would say to climate change deniers is, well, you, you know, you don't understand possibly that that you know what we're talking about is that it's it's not so much a uh, fires that are you know just a product of nature and natural and everything else. What we're seeing is a, is fires that are a product of a social system, and your own sort of alienation from that process means you're not. You're not even seeing that picture. You're not even not even aware, that, you know, that our society carries its own ecology in that sense. You're just sort of placing human beings outside of nature, in that, and then saying, "Oh, look how awful it is." In that context, you turn a nice phrase. You say that industrial capitalism hides our our fires from us by creating the illusion of soot, soot free energy. Again, again, 608-256-2001, if you want to join us with a comment, a question, an observation at half, just a couple minutes, a minute, less than a couple of minutes at the half hour. Talk about, relatedly, talk about urbanized unfamiliarity uh, combined with, you mentioned, combined with our attention, or excuse me, with our alienation from nature, leads us to view large fires and other elements of nature as external to broader human affairs, but they're quite obviously, as, as you've alluded to, quite present, quite internal with us all the time. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a really important question for the whole uh, environmental debate, I guess. Um, there is a, a tendency, particularly in the, in the West, um, to see human beings as an inherently awful organism that's destructive. I mean, those those who care. I mean, there's lots of people who don't care, so this isn't an issue for them, I guess. Um, and that that you know that we're some kind of um, biological anomaly that's that's landed, and you know we've been very destructive and so on. But but all of those things, it, you know, that that position is almost misanthropic. You know, it's almost people hating. It's very closely connected to Malthusian ideas of there being too many people, for example. Uh, those ideas are, are very ahistorical. They don't look at what other cultures and communities and economies and societies, uh, how they interacted with nature before Western contact, for example. Um, and it's probably worth remembering that, that we in the West are the, are the most alienated from nature uh, because even when we we kind of want to appreciate it. We we tend to carve it off into things like national parks and so on. Whereas, actually, for the vast majority of the the Holocene uh, or the deep Anthropocene, if you like, human beings have been interacting with nature, and nature's had to wrap itself around us. And and that sometimes that's destructive, but very often is a creative process for that. So there's a whole suite of birds, for example, that we we describe as farmland birds, but we forget. You know that, that that it's the process of farming that's that created those habitats and, and and those landscapes that the birds adapt to. So it it's it's almost as if we become immature. I think um, in in the West, our dislocation from nature means we're a bit like kids. You know, we don't we don't understand a, a crucial element of the world, and and unfortunately, we don't necessarily because of our leaders and their kind of alignment with capitalism. We don't have we don't have any guiding lights to to say look you know actually human beings have always interacted with nature it doesn't have to be as destructive as this there are alternatives um and i guess that's where eco-socialism comes back into the mix 
You point out that the promotion of habitat burning and destruction for profit uh, is a global phenomenon. We've touched on that. But I want to, I also now want to turn our attention to the threats of the, to the biosphere, which these uh, infernos bring. Um, its relationship, for instance, to the extinction crisis. Yeah, I, it, it, these fires are being used to clear and to simplify biodiversity. And by that, you know, to go back to what I said earlier, they are destroying very complex habitats that actually people have been interacting with for you know, thousands of years, in the case of the rainforests and everywhere else. They're destroying that complexity, smashing that interrelationship, and replacing them with with uh, you know profitable commodities. I mean, if we wanted to sort of see what that means, um, you know, if we think of examples of of hateful waste that are similar in history, we might, for example, point at the you know the book burning of the Nazis, you know, and, and say, well, that you know that's that's an appalling act. Well, it's, there's not, you know, I mean, apart from its slight political orientation, there's not much difference objectively. What we're seeing is the burning of nature's library to the ground. You know, I mean, we, we've only discovered about 1.3 million species so far. Uh, and estimates put the rat, you know, the actual number between 80 and 30 and some estimates as, as high as 100 million. The vast majority of those species are in the tropical belt. Um, so we are destroying and accelerating an extinction crisis, even without having a chance to discover what's there. And that, that's the equivalent of burning a library to the ground full of wonderful works. You know, and there's lots of reasons why we shouldn't be doing it if we want to take a selfish position, you know, the possible medicines that could be found and, and those sorts of things. But as a basic kind of way of life, torching a, a very diverse area in order to replace it with something simplified that makes profits for an opulent minority is is a very uh, a very abhorrent position morally ethically and it undercuts the possibilities for future generations to cope with the climate change that's that's already loaded into the system talk about the uh, the fuel load of uh, you touched on it again the uh, the translocation of various species, plant species pri primarily, uh, and the use of fire to clear natural vegetation, vegetation, the system's preference for profit-friendly ecological uniformity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did touch on it a little while ago, and palm oil is a really good example. Uh, but you could go back into history. It, it's it's nothing new. I mean, if you think about what we did, uh, I say we. <laughs> it's suddenly feeling guilty as a middle-aged white man. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is what what happened uh, if we look at what's now called the West Indies, for example. You know, there were various native uh, or indigenous tribes there when Columbus discovered them. Uh, he very quickly went about. Uh, you know, turning them into slaves, more or less working them to death, and then the whole transatlantic slave um, trade was developed in order to develop a number of specific commodities for Western markets, so sugar, tobacco, coffee, that kind of stuff. Um, the, the ecological impact of that must have been absolutely awful, because if you think about where that those uh, islands are, it's within that sort of, you know, tropical belt as it were but also what we now know about islands uh, thanks to the work of charles darwin and alfred russell wallace who started the ball rolling on this is that islands have a very high level of biodiversity because you get this thing called endemism which is you know the more isolated they become the more they diversify so uh, you know even if we're thinking of a historic example of how this process has happened the, the use of fire and slash and burn to remove that habitat and replace it with monoculture uh, plantations and and then you know to exploit uh, humans uh, you know of a, of a different color uh, you know in the most appalling way to generate profits uh, and to basically accelerate the destruction of the soils in those areas um it's it you know it, it's it's evidence that the capitalism and and it was 
early capitalism that was doing that has a long history of that process of simplification but underneath that and alongside it is very barbaric levels of exploitation of human beings and wanton destruction of other species and cultures uh, to, to, to get to that simplified system. I want to switch gears a little bit. That is, let's, let's talk about the role of the mainstream media system, the role it plays uh, uh, in focusing on, the indivi- on individual behavior as the wildfire spark. Yeah, you don't get very, uh, you don't, sort of narratives. I mean, I can only give you the example, I suppose, not far from here in the South Wales valleys, which were, um, you know, all coal mining region. There's no coal mining there, so they're post-industrial. Um, they've got high levels of social deprivation and poverty r- uh, relative to, you know, some of the bigger urban areas like, like Cardiff and so on. Um but it's uh, what we've seen there is a process of nature recovery. So if you go back to the South Wales Valley, now where my grandfather was a miner, and uh, at one point there was you know black slag heaps, uh, you know waste coal and uh, polluted rivers and all those sorts of things. And there's been a lot of recovery. You know, after after the industrial process came to an end, it came to an end quite violently with the you know because of um, the minor strikes of 84 and so on, but it came to the end nonetheless. And if we think in terms of ecology, what we've seen is this this recovery. So now you go back and they're very forested and there's a lot more species there. And it's, you know, it's quite, it's very picturesque. It's very beautiful. But the human populations, you know, if there's only, if there is one species still suffering in the South Wales Valleys, it is Homo sapiens brackets working class because they've been left in these settlements without, jobs without livelihoods and with all sorts of health problems and deprivation and in some instances i my guess and i and this is only what i've seen i suppose anecdotally but is that that they take out that alienation on the landscape around because you know they see nature recover but their prospects are, are very poor so you have this kind of narrative that that you know every school holiday in wales the kids are going to go out and set fire to the hills and, you know, maybe take selfies themselves or sit back and enjoy the conflagrations that they've started. And we do get a lot of fires. I mean, there were three big ones in the last fortnight, uh, even inside the National Park here. Um, and uh, and that's a very simplistic media narrative, but it, it doesn't go any deeper. It doesn't ask why, uh, you know, these kids might be disaffected. It doesn't ask what's happened to their communities. Uh, and also it, it's a very handy blame game so you know if, if a farmer for instance wanted to sort of go and <laughs> enhance the sort of pastures on the uplands and decided to drive a, a you know a quad bike with a burning tire behind him he would do it in the school holidays so that you know the, the, the kids are getting the blame i'm not saying that that's always happening but it's you know there are lots of things that that the media could explore but they they fixate on you know a lazy barbecue chef or a disaffected uh, arsonist and um, they, they will take notice of what's happening in places like the Pantanal and, you know, the rainforests or what's happening in Canada, but they won't ask any sort of deep questions about that. They'll, they'll have a very shallow analysis. So they're not, mainstream media is not a very helpful place to understand our ecology uh, because it's embedded within the system at this point and, and pretty much incapable of giving any nuance. You, you write that the ruling capitalist class, as the chief benefactors of global capitalism, has established a social context that favors, this is a term I uh, kind of was, I've thought about since I read it, uh, a, a context that favors wildfire development. Talk about wildfire de- development. When I read it, I, and since I thought about the term very, very much brings to mind that that of uh, disaster capitalism used by the Canadian journalist uh, uh, Naomi Klein. Yeah, and it's um, it's very. I suppose it's related to that point. I mean, for every time capitalism creates a disaster like a like a wildfire, it seeks advantage or seeks extension. 
Um, you know, I mean, I, I, in many ways, it does that by reprioritizing the solutions towards profit. And we've seen this time and time again with lots of, you know, so-called natural disasters that relate to climate change or extreme weather um, are worsened by social inequalities. Um, you know, but but capitalism will take those. And I think Naomi Klein pointed out in relation to big floods in Mississippi and so on that you know that that idea that the way you solve those things is to bring more neoliberalism into the system. You know, and and if necessary, enforce that on very traumatized communities. You know, to to, to drive a wedge even deeper. You know, unleash more capitalism, um, which is a bit like I suppose. <laughs> it's a bit like throwing petrol on a fire, you know, it's it worsens the, the social and economic and ecological conditions that cause those problems in the first place. But it ups the profits. And that's, that's the key thing. And uh, I mean, if we think about the situation in the States at the moment, you know, you've just gone through the tensions of the of the deficit. Um, and you we know, there's a uh, you know, somewhere behind what's been going on, there's agreement on what areas of the public budget will be cut. And what we can all predict is that it won't be military. You know, it'll be really important public sector um, or, or, or public services. And and that may well include things like, you know, uh, firefighting facilities. I mean, the fact that in California they had to turn to, you know, prison population and ask them to, you know, or offer them opportunities for, for parole in exchange for firefighting, which is, firefighting is a really full on, uh, you know, experience. It requires an enormous amount of training. It requires an enormous amount of experience. It's shattering and it requires very, very tight, you know, teamwork and control and all that sort of thing. So just throwing your, in inverted commas, surplus population at, at fires in exchange for parole is, you know, it's a really good example of disaster capitalism. And it, and it, it doesn't do anything to affect the underlying causes of the wildfires and therefore is part of the development of wildfires in and of themselves. You know, mm. if this is with us now, if, you know, if this is every year now, so this is the third year we've been, you know, subject to massive conflagrations somewhere in the world, that are unprecedented related to climate change, we should have a, an international firefighting, you know, force uh, to hand at this point. Every country should have the resources necessary, the labor, the training skills to start dealing with this. And also a mature discussion about the ecology that's causing this, you know, actually get to grips with capitalism's impact on ecology and say, we need more diversity, not more monoculture. We need less, plantation forestry and more you know nuanced approaches towards forestry and we've got to stop moving invasive species around the planet for profit you know there might be reasons for doing it for other reasons but let's be careful about it and let's start planning properly oh we know that's not going to happen you know i mean if, if we have major fires in the us and they run over the the budget allocations again there's a predictability to that and um you know it didn't have to be that way you know you could reprioritize our budgets and invest in what's necessary but unfortunately the, our leaders in the capitalist class that they work so closely with are unlikely to do that again you're listening to ian rappel speaking to us from wales uh eco-socialist and activist give us a call at 256-2000-608-256-2001 uh, if you want to join us uh we got about oh 12 or so, 13 minutes left in the hour. I don't know where it flies by. Let's return. You've used the term um, uh, neoliberalism. Uh, that is, there's general class dimensions that you talk, but you also talk about how over four decades of neoliberalism's assault on the public sphere has affected uh, firefighting services. You just touched on that. I'm going to, you know, th this whole thing of, of, Prisoners being taken out, uh, offered offered parole at a pittance, like $3 a day or whatever, with minimal training uh, going out. Uh, you, you say capitalism not only produces wildfire, but it is willing to throw its surplus populations against the flames. That's uh, I hadn't thought about it <laughs> too much. Yeah. No, well, it's, 
that's an alarming thought, isn't it? Because it's it's dystopian. This is is a you know it's it's an acceptance that we're living in a dystopian moment. Um, you know, in many you know even if we accept and we shouldn't that those you know mass incarcerations are you know an acceptable thing and we shouldn't accept that for a minute. But even if we did, to then you know effectively blackmail. Uh, people in that position to go and fight, you know, put their lives on the lines to fight these fires. When actually, what's needed is is meaningful investment in machines, equipment, technology, labour, and you know, very regular skill sharing across the world. Which I mean, all of that is, you know, that is taking place, but at nowhere near the level that's going to be necessary. It doesn't. It's not coping with it now. I mean, in, in the fires last year in around London, that saw houses burned to the ground and. The London Fire Brigade had its busiest call-out period since the Blitz of the Second World War. You know, I mean, that's if that's going to be the scale of these conflagrations, we need serious, very serious social planning. And you know, if you were to turn to the you know the population of incarcerated people and say, you know, would you like a career in firefighting? <laughs> and here's a here's an entire system of apprenticeship and. You know, upskilling and all that sort of stuff that might be one thing but that that's not what's happening you know it's yeah. it's it's shuffling the responsibility for fighting the consequences of the capitalist system onto the very victims of that system yeah the uh to talk about social planning and programs and so on in this age of uh, advanced neoliberal capitalism yeah almost becomes again part of a uh, utopian ideal yeah, which is, I mean, it, given what's going on and what's coming down the road, uh, is it, beyond ridiculous. And the fact that every time there's a crisis, they extend the neoliberal dog. You know, they're not retracted. You know, you know, that expansion of that whole program reminded me. And you were talking earlier about uh, f- fires uh, raising the. Pro- and, and the rebuilding from fires, if it takes place, um, <clears throat> transferred into higher profit rates. It reminded me of Mike Davis. You mentioned Mike Davis earlier, uh, his great book, Ecology of Fear, in which he, he caught hell for <laughs> for a chapter in that book. They went after him like crazy after it was a big award winner, bestseller, and so on. A, uh, a chapter called Let Malibu Burn, where he talked about <laughs> the importation of in, in, invasive uh, plants, uh, cactus, and so on, uh, on the hills of Mar- Malibu, and then the, the, um, uh, with, the, with the drying out of, of the hillsides, the, the catch fire, and multi-million dollar homes would catch fire, uh, incinerate, be, uh, be incinerated, uh, and then to be a new wave of building on the hillsides and new planting uh, with an increase in prices all along the ladder. So it's a wonderful illustration of uh, what, what you were talking about. He's, he's much missed. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Um, <clears throat> I want to take us back uh, to the beginning. Um, that is, f- you, you state that fires started by the system's application of fuel loads and ignition sources are enhanced into mega conflagrations by climate change. You, yeah, <clears throat> Talk about that maybe a little bit further, and, and, and relatedly, this what I was just alluding, alluding to, what you refer to as capitalism's dysfunctional ecology. Yeah, I mean, it, <clears throat> it's it's a sort of perfect storm, isn't it? Um, I, I think part of the problem is, for various reasons, back in the early nineties, there was a decision to divide out things like the biodiversity crisis from climate change. And you've got these conventions of the parties at the UN level that deal with those things sort of separately. What we're talking about is a, is a crisis of nature in its totality. Um, and it's a product of a system operating in, in that totality. If we recombine the biodiversity crisis with climate change, what we'd find is sat right in the middle uh, is the issue with the wildfire. You know, it's it's responsible for the destruction of biodiversity and it's being enhanced by climate change. 
and there may be remedies that we could build on that would build back biodiversity and, and create a diversity within the landscapes and also you know diminish the amount of carbon dioxide that's released from wildfires but also uh, you know draw down some carbon back into nature so it, part of what we're struggling with i think is is for you know we've uh, almost allowed the environmental issue to become broken down into these regions and areas and then not recombine them and for, i think for the ruling class that's quite handy you know they can they can talk about climate over here nature crisis and ecology over there and you know never the twain shall meet um and it's it's ludicrous because nature doesn't operate like that it's a it's a system and it it, it connects these things very very well and quite terrifyingly well So what are the remedies? You say that uh, the alternatives are already here, uh, but also tell us that capitalism is dismissive of unprofitable remedies. Go into that a little bit. Um, or, or the simplistic or, or, or failed-from-the-start solutions that are put forward th- uh, through the mainstream, uh, even the mainstream environmental movement. Uh, well, I think it's... I mean, if you look at the biodiversity crisis, for example, the mainstream response is the way to get out of this is, is you know, we recognize that economics doesn't take biodiversity into account. So the best thing we can do is give nature a financial value and, you know, then apply a lot of models, call it natural capital, apply a lot of models, set up new markets in trading nature and biodiversity offsetting so we can carry on with development and at the same time not destroy biodiversity. But that that kind of approach, you know, I mean, it's uh, expecting the system that's caused the problem to provide the solutions. You know, it's pretty been pretty well established that that's not going to happen. You know, it's a bit like asking Dracula to look after the blood bank. You know, it's 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 it just won't happen that way because it's not dynamic enough and not set up enough and not questioning of its own principles. You know, the issue is profit, not you know whether you can profit from nature. Um, so yeah, what we need is more uh, optimism, and to to come from a different position. Um, give us your critique of uh, these, you know, strategies uh, again, pretty much mainstream. To um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, pretty much around decarbonization, uh, carb- carbon. What's the term I'm losing here? Um, offsetting is it? thank you <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay uh well i mean that's a very easy one i suppose in a way because it's just the word offset uh if you look at all the big reports climate biodiversity everything else the, the phrase that sings through all the time even in the mainstream ones is we need transformative change um and offsetting doesn't provide that Offsetting is people carrying on their behavior, but in some way trying to compensate for it. That's not transformative change. Uh, but that's the reason why they're attracted by things like biodiversity offsetting, carbon offsetting. Uh, you know, it, it, it helps them carry on their behaviors of, of fossil fuel extraction. It accelerates climate change, doesn't do anything about it. And it certainly accelerates biodiversity loss because it destroys one area and then, you know, attempts to replicate it elsewhere or gives credits to an organization that's promised to do something somewhere else in the world so it it, it they're, they're not they're just words applied to the same system and then pushing the problems around and flattering some environmental and non-governmental organizations and charities you know we're just but, getting but not dealing with it we're just getting down to the end of the uh, of the hour and of course, as so often happens, we do have a caller that I want to squeeze in. So, <laughs> okay, uh, cool. Yeah, hey, Rebecca, hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks, and thanks, uh, Alan and Ian, both. Um, I wanted to ask you more about your notion of radical hopefulness or radical op- optimism. I read your um, article, "The Ecology of Victory in the Ecologist," and as someone who is um, on the front lines with indigenous-led uh, water protector movements against fossil fuels, um, I find hope in just the relationships we build with the people who understand the land on which we live and know how to protect it um, the most and, and building from that like internationally. 
But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about um, what you mean by radical hopefulness for uh, for communities. Well, I, I think it's probably the most important uh, quality to develop, or not so much develop, but, but bring forth, because it's in many ways it's it's latent within all struggles. You know, I, I, I mean, we, we, I think it was Chomsky who said something like optimism is a strategy for a, a better future, and that's you know that's that's the key bit. But but uh, the reason why it needs to be sort of radical is that it it needs to be grassroots bottom up and if you know if we if we think about the way that we've generated any meaningful social change under capitalism it's always come from the bottom there are occasional leaders you know, who who are part of a movement who form figureheads that we can coalesce around but it's ordinary people within communities uh, fighting back and not losing hope I suppose not losing hope, realizing that there'll be some setbacks, uh, but but carrying on nonetheless, and most importantly, being principled, uh, and and you know not 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 um, not giving up early on exchange in exchange for some patronage from rich and powerful people, or even some straight cash in the case of biodiversity and carbon offsetting, but actually saying no, you know, this the system is wrong. The system that you're benefiting from is wrong, and what you're trying to do to our community, whether it's a road or a a, a mine or a coal mine or a, you know all those sorts of things, we know that those are unsustainable and unviable, um, and not just for us but for future generations. So it, it's to realise, I suppose, that, that it, it, we have all of the solutions that we need already, but they're on the margins or they're embedded within communities that haven't been able to bring them into play yet. Uh, so the most important thing there is unified struggle from the grassroots, involving pretty much everybody, as you say, indigenous, uh, you know, in the global south, the working class, you know, working with the global uh, peasantry of the global and so on. Working together, not necessarily agreeing on everything, but realizing that the, the fundamental problem is the one in front. Uh, you know, so unfortunately, we're right down to the hour, end of the hour. We have so much more we could talk about just uh, that I extracted from your uh, wonderful article and you have a whole corpus. If people want to find you online, where do they look? Uh, so uh, if you go to International Socialism Journal, uh, which is, uh, I think, isj.org.uk, I think, um, there's a few articles there. Otherwise, if you Google my name, you'll, I mean, you might get some climbing equipment, but... Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, you pick up my articles. <laughs> well, I want to thank you uh, for being with us all the way from Wales or with us sitting here in the in the upper Midwest. You've been listening to Ian Rappel, uh, eco-socialist, activist, uh, again, in Wales and uh, author. I want to thank Chuck for engineering, Jade for producing. I want to thank uh, you, our listeners. I want to thank Rebecca for calling in today. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week.